When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of My Life in Four Trades. Joining me today is Nancy Davis, founder of Quadratic Capital Management. Hi, Nancy. Welcome to My Life in Four Trades. Thanks for having me on, Maggie. It's great to see you. I feel like we uh, we represent spring is in the air, right? Today yeah, that's right. Yellow and pink. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Well, before we jump into your trade, so on My Life in Four Trades, we do two of your best trades, two of your worst trades. But before we jump in, it's our tradition to learn a little bit about your background. So where did you grow up and what were you like as a kid? Um, I would describe myself as dirty and outside all the time. I never wore shoes. I was always in a I spent probably a third of my life in a magnolia tree in the yard, and I was always outside and running around. So, a, a free spirit. Were you were you into <laughs> sports, or were you were you always sort of into academics? What were you what What were your interests? What were you? How'd you um, spend your time? I definitely like sports. Um, my uh, my father is a musician, so I also played a lot of musical instruments growing up, and. I uh, I was the stand-up bassist for my high school's orchestra, which was pretty cool. Um, given I'm, you know, petite, you know, I'm about five <laughs> so three on a good day. Instrument yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. um, did you? So that's such an in, that's a, an interesting way to start, given where your career took you. Did you have an awareness of money from a young age or markets? Was that something that was discussed in your house? Oh no, not at all. My my parents were like, don't know anything about markets. Um, didn't have any ties to Wall Street. I had never even been to New York until you know I started interviewing for Wall Street jobs. So it was totally you know out of what I grew up with. So how did it get on your radar? Like, when did you first become aware of it? Um, well, I had a uh, an academic scholarship to college. I was. Uh, you know, I had a, an academic ride and then my um, a lot of my friends would, you know, go out and go out to dinner and I wanted to go out with other kids. And so I had a job all through college um, and uh, through my job, like once I realized I could work off campus and get paid a lot more and do something more interesting, I started to, um, because of my job, wanted to learn about derivatives because we were using a lot of swaps in, um, I worked for a management consulting firm. It was, uh, you know, I was a, an intern there, but I was paid and I was working, you know, probably 40 hours my last two years. And I had to learn about derivatives for, for my job. And that's kind of how I fell into it was, uh, you know, and then I started trading um, myself. Um, 
And uh, I think I probably looked a little different when I, you know, I didn't know anybody. I, I came to Goldman Sachs right out of college. I didn't know anyone at the firm. I had never even been to New York. I just sent my resume in on the internet. <laughs> so it was, uh, <laughs> yeah, back then, you remember that before before LinkedIn. So I know, right? what did you were you in math classes in college that you were sort of working? So you're in DC, I think, at this time, right? Yeah, I was in DC. Um, and I took a, a bunch of because I had like a day job, I was taking a lot of night classes. And because I was um, an academic scholarship kid, I was in what they call the honor program. So I could take classes in any of the different universities. And I ended up taking five grad classes, which is kind of how I got into the derivatives markets. And I just thought it was so fascinating. And I was really fortunate that um, one of my professors was a ex, you know, LBO banker and um, kind of helped me a little bit about you know, I remember when I was applying to these different firms, he was so funny. He, uh, you know, I got an offer from Goldman. He's like, you should take that. And I said, well, I had these other offers and I was going through the other firms. He's like, no, Goldman's the best. You should go there. So yeah, you need some have. guidance if you're if you're flying blind, because this is, you know, this is before I remember when we were going because I have a, a daughter who's kind of going in the beginning of the college process now. I tell her all the time, like, we didn't know anything, you know, like yeah. we never visited schools. We ended up there. And even the job process, you, you just did not have sort of the amount of information and social mm -hmm. media and all these other things to fill you in. So it was, it was kind of like flying blind. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, but I think in a way it's good because then you can really listen to what people tell you who are more experienced. And I think maybe now it's a little harder because you have so much information. It's tough to know who to listen to because you're like information overload. So, yeah. So that, that Goldman uh, interview process must've been a doozy. We've, we've had a couple Golden alumni on, um, Sergio Silver was one of them who told us about his like 400 interviews that he had to go through to get, I, I think that was when he was an intern. <laughs> um, exaggerating, but um, it's, it's a pretty, pretty brutal process. What did you, what did you make of the, the, your first sort of impression of, of Wall Street? Um, you know, it was definitely, uh, I had read about the stress interviews and I kind of was like, I'm great at math, like bring it on. You know, I was sort of like, a, you know, in it to win it kind of mentality. And um, I don't know, I just kind of took it in stride. And I think I was always pretty self-confident, um, even, even when I was a college student. So I sort of was like, I know my stuff, you know. But I think once I got into the firm, it definitely felt a little like I wasn't from an Ivy League school. I think a lot of the other analysts, and even when I went through the associate program, um, there were, you know, I was kind of a, an outlier in terms of, you know, my path getting there. Yeah, this isn't this isn't one of your trades. It's a bonus trade, but I I understand <laughs> that there's a um a, a lucky green dress that you feel like played a role in your in your Goldman journey. <laughs> Tell me yeah. about that. <laughs> well, um, so I uh, I took the train up to New York for my first Goldman interview. I wore this dress that I bought literally at TJ Maxx. It's green and stretchy, and it was great for the train and. I guess I'm, you know, knock on wood, very fortunate that I can still wear that dress because um, in the middle of the uh, the pandemic, so March 2020, I was invited by the New York Stock Exchange to ring the closing bell. And it happened to be 
the worst down day in the U.S. equity market since uh, the 87 crash. The market was just falling. And I knew it was falling when I, you know, left to go to the stock exchange for the close. And so I'm looking at my closet and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to wear my lucky green dress. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm very fortunate. It's uh, it's stretchy. It can still fit me. And um, yeah, if you Google, uh, it's kind of cool. It's on the internet. If you Google my name, you know, and then hottest ETF, you'll see a picture of the the green dress from and then the next day it was i believe it was the middle of march 2020 the next day the new york stock exchange completely shut down and went all electronic so i was actually the last person to ring the bell before they shut down which is which is absolutely crazy and crazy that you know something plays a role in both of those really pivotal times in your life. You know, we were joking about calling it a lucky dress, but I, I wonder the subject of luck comes up a lot in these interviews. <laughs> um, how much do you think that luck plays a role and skill plays a role? Um, I think both play a role, but I, I do consider myself a very lucky person. Um, I had a tremendous amount of opportunities. I was with the right people. Um, I've had a lot of support over my career, over my life. So I do, you know, feel very lucky. And I know Goldman, especially on the prop desk, you know, I joined the prop desk um, uh, very early on. It was, I spent about seven years with Goldman props, about 10 years with the whole firm. And in the prop desk, we were always very superstitious. You know, there was no like, no red. Red is the color of losing money. Green is the color of making money, hence my green dress on the worst down day in the U.S. equity market. I was like, stop the nonsense. This is uh, <laughs> overdone. But yeah, we, uh, you know, no red nail polish, no red ties, no red pens. You know, I guess I've always been a little a little superstitious and somebody who believes that inherently I'm a pretty lucky person. That's amazing. I didn't realize there was that. I'm not surprised, though, but I didn't realize there was that level of superstition. Yeah, you know, among, and like especially if it's it. like Goldman who pride themselves on their skill, you know. So, but I guess everyone, I guess everyone falls victim to that. Yeah, um, that was Eric Mendich, um back in the day. He was the one who kind of started the like no red thing. <laughs> I love it. I wonder if they're still doing it. Goldman people, call us up. Let us know if that's still a rule. Um, <laughs> as you climb the, as you were making your way through Goldman, I mean that's a pretty cutthroat firm. We've all heard stories. How did you how did you navigate that? How did you find that whole experience? Well, I had a wonderful. Did you time end at up Goldman. as head of credit derivatives and and OTC trading? That's not that's no small yeah. thing. Yeah, thanks. I, you know, in in um again, I do feel like I was very very lucky to be in the prop desk because at the end of the day, you had a number next to your name, and there was it was very very flat organization there weren't a lot of politics i always i always tell other women like it's a great place to be as a trader or a portfolio manager cuz you you can really cut through the the bullshit and the politics and so i was um i think it was 2003 when i was promoted to be the head of credit derivatives and otc trading for the Goldman prop desk. And I ran the group for about five years before I went to JP Morgan's hedge fund. And it was just, it was a wonderful place to be. I had both my children at Goldman when I was, uh, you know, came back for both of them after maternity leave. And I just had a wonderful experience. And, uh, you know, I was very honored because recently Goldman um, 
had a women's conference in London and they actually had me in as a speaker. I was one of the few, you know, people outside the firm as an alum, but yeah, I had a wonderful time there. I love the firm. It was the best um, culture and such a great training ground. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to do's, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, that's a, it's amazing to hear um, because it's hard, you know, especially when you're when you're trying to juggle family. A lot of people step out. It's, you know, the broken, the broken wrong. A lot of people step out. It's really hard to to kind of find your way back in. So it's. Mm-hmm amazing that you did it, but also that you you found that you were supported in that. So so let's jump into your first trade. Yeah. Um, and it was a good one. And I believe <laughs> this is when you're at Goldman, but you'll tell us. And that was in 2011. So maybe you weren't, I'm not sure. Being on the other side of the London whale trade. So set the scene for us. Like, are you at Goldman? Where are you? What's happening at work and at this time of your life? Yeah, so I was not at Goldman for this. I was at a uh, 1940 Act mutual fund, and I didn't know that it was the other side of the London whale trade. I had no idea that was coming or what it was, but um, we were, you know, long-only credit, and as, you know, all the credit funds had a tremendous amount of exposure to credit spreads widening and correlation increasing, I was looking at the tranche market and saw, you know, IG9 um, super senior tranches were like super cheap. So you could buy protection to benefit when credit spreads widening and when correlations increased, which is exactly, you know, as a long only mutual fund when the funds actually lost money. So I was running around trying to put um, IG9 super senior protection in all of these portfolios across the firm. And it was pretty exciting. I had to actually go and go to the board meetings, change the prospectuses of the mutual fund because derivatives were not allowed. And so it was definitely um, a huge learning experience for me to be able to try to communicate to the board um, what we were trying to do and why it was good, a good fiduciary thing to do and why it was good for the fund investors and having that communication. I actually still keep in touch with some of the board members. I actually emailed one of uh, the guy who used to be the chair of the board last week. And so that was, you know, 10 plus, you know, 12 years ago. And so it's really cool to make those relationships and then continue them. So so what was the reaction when you were going around to these boards? Because it sounds like you were seeing something that other people were not. And you had to sort of convince <laughs> them to see what you were seeing. What was the reaction when you first started going to them? Because like people don't like change, especially when you have to change like the bureaucracy of something like a prospectus. Yeah, I mean, I think what I was seeing was like, look, we're we're long, we're long only fund, and this is a way of protecting in case of recession or you know um, that was when Greece was happening and the whole European crisis, and so there was a lot of turbulence in the world, and interest rates were still you know, basically at zero. And so I just, 
I didn't know it ended up being the other side of the London whale trade, but I remember going to my my boss and saying, you know, I I've heard these things about JP Morgan. I don't I don't think they know about it. Can I go tell, you know, Jess Staley? Because I used to work with him when I was at JP Morgan at their hedge fund. And so I knew I knew people at JP Morgan from when I was um I was a portfolio manager at their uh, their hedge fund strategy. So it wasn't part of the sell side. It was just a private fund. Mm. Um, but yeah, it turned out, I remember my boss sent me a really funny email the day that the JP Morgan News, you know, the one in whale trade. I didn't know it was called the one in whale trade, but he said, you know, something I'm paraphrasing, but I have egg on my face. You were right. I can't believe it. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah I mean, no one. Yeah. That, was, that was for those who who may not have been around when that was happening, it was shocking. And also everyone thought that nothing like that could happen after all of the things that took place in the great financial crisis and in 2000, you know, there were so many regulate, there was so much that happened in banking that for, for something like that to go down was sort of, I mean, it sent shockwaves through everything. So did you have anybody who, um, like who doubted you or resisted you or thought like, oh, this, is, this isn't necessary? Did you get a lot of pushback or... Did people kind of come around to this idea that needed to be hedged? Because there's a lot of talk right now about people who are not sufficiently hedged. But yeah. back then, was it an easy an easy sell, or you know, did you really have to sort of convince some people? I mean, it, it kind of depends. Like everybody's different. Um, you know, I definitely remember periods in my career where things were so obvious. Like when I worked at um, J.P. Morgan's hedge fund, I had. Um, Volkswagen options. I was long optionality uh, in Volkswagen because Volkswagen Vol was cheaper than dollar yen. It was like the cheapest. It was a single stock Vol that you could buy for single digits. And I remember going around the firm. I already had it in my portfolio, but going around the firm specifically to the uh, convert desk who, you know, by nature, convert desks are always short stocks. And I was like, look, convert this thing into puts because the ball is so cheap. And so I remember doing that and like, definitely that was frustrating because a lot of people did not listen to me and they were like, well, it's realizing four and it's priced at six. So that's a really extreme premium. I was like, are you crazy? Like <laughs> dollar yen balls 10 and this is six. Um, so I've definitely had points in my life where I've saw things and implemented it myself, but trying to convince others is really a skill that I would say I'm not particularly good at. I have a lot of conviction with my things, but convincing other people to do things is not, I'd say, my skill set. But in terms of the um, buying super senior protection, I was able to convince several portfolio managers to add it, but then several others who did not. So, mm. you know, I think all you can do is um, control your own portfolio, and then tell people about what they're doing and let them make their own decision. Yeah. Um, it's funny that you think it, you're, you're describing it as something that's not your skill set, because I think there are an <laughs> awful lot of people who are early who would tell you that, that it, is, it has to do with a lot of other things as opposed to the person telling them. You know, sometimes people just don't want to hear things for a variety of reasons. Um, so what do you think your what do you think the takeaway was from this? I mean, first of all, what did you what did, what was your reaction when you found out that you were on the other side of these trades? Because you didn't know for most of the time, right? No, no, I did I didn't know um, at all. Uh, you know, kind of it's it's really hard in the moment to know like who's on the other side, especially when sure. you're not in a customer 
you know, I, I hadn't really been on a customer desk since like, you know, my early days at Goldman, I was on the sell side, sell side, but afterwards I was always on the buy side and you don't really know who the flows are. You don't have that information. And so I think it's more of just looking for opportunities, looking for attractive convexities, looking for things that are might potentially be mispriced. Um, and I've always been somebody who just loves buying, you know, cheap options and being kind of anti-consensus, I guess you could say, like when everybody is, you know, worried about something, I I like to, you know, take the other side or vice versa. And so that's kind of been, I guess, as somebody who focuses on, you know, the asymmetric part of the derivatives market. So I don't use any linear derivatives like futures, forward swaps, all of those go up a dollar, but they go down a dollar. I'm not a big fan of linear derivatives. I only like the asymmetric derivatives, so options specifically. And I like to buy options, which is which is weird in itself, Maggie. You know, 99% of the world, all they do is sell options. And so I've always felt like I've had this different different way of constructing portfolios. But to me, it's like such a no-brainer. I'm like, everybody is trying to lose money with their options, right? If you think about it, like everybody has their portfolio and then they sprinkle the options, either sell them and hope they expire or they buy them for hedges, but nobody's actually trying to make money off the options. So to me, it seems like a, you know, very obvious, like that's a great place to add alpha. But, you know, I've always thought about things a little differently. Yeah, clearly, clearly. <laughs> uh, that's amazing. So so and it, it's interesting in context of your next trade, which is one of your worst, and it's being short Japan. And so we'll just say <laughs> in both of your worst trades, they're trades that have frustrated you over long periods of time. But let's start with Japan. Why does this make the list? I mean, there's so many reasons that, you know, Japan is sometimes called the widow maker. So I've yes over the course of my career, tried to short Japan in all sorts of ways, whether it was payer swaptions in the rates market or, you know, uh, JPY FX options or Nikkei or dispersion. You know, Japan is just always frustrating because there's fundamentals and then there's Japan. <laughs> and Japan, <laughs> you know, has has just been, you know, something that's been very hard. I think, you know, Obviously, the central bank has been manipulating their markets for a long time. They've been in significant deflation for a very long period. Like even now, it blows my mind. Like I look at Japan's doing still yield curve control, and their yield curve is about positive 50 when you look at the twos, tens, JGBs or twos, tens, JPY swaps, positive 50 where the U.S. is like massively inverted still. So to me, I'm just like, what in the world? That makes no sense um, that the U.S. is so negative and Japan is positive. But Japan's definitely been like over time just incredibly frustrating because I always want to short it and I'm never, never, you know, sometimes you can get good carry because um, depending on what currency you pair it against, if you're long a higher yielding currency, I guess my most success with Japan is having the carry currencies versus Japan, but rates, forget about it. It's like so hard to make money there. And then the equity market just really is uh, is distorted because of the central bank's activities. Yeah. 
Why do you think you kept going back? Or you, you, you know, because it's it's been multiple times you've tried all different kinds of things. Why not just throw well, in the towel and say Japan, forget it? It's cheap ball. <laughs> like it goes back to you know, I like I like cheap ball, and um, you know, it's very it gets really cheap sometimes because uh, you know, so owning cheap optionality is always something that is a little you know, it's a little uh, thing that keeps me coming back. <laughs> Would you, are you ever tempted to try again? Um, you know, I think at some point, definitely. But right now I'm, uh, I'm doing 40 act funds that have very clear prospectuses and Japan has not eaten any of our funds. So not at the moment. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Maybe maybe in Nancy's private life one of these days. It sounds like the one that got away, you know? <laughs> you yeah. can't crack the code. It's frustrating. I know, right? <laughs> so one of your other trades in in a similar fashion that ranks as your worst is gold. And this is this is another one that you just been frustrated with time and time again. Are there similarities to the Japan trade? Like why what is it about gold that puts it in the worst? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, especially after the financial crisis, really was one of those people that the Fed doing QE and printing all this money is going to be very inflationary. And so I've had had gold in my portfolio and my personal account for really since, you know, I'd say 09. And with the exception of like certain periods, it really doesn't do anything. And so I've had all different ways of constructing long gold. I think probably the most clever was against um, Swiss franc. So you can actually own gold in FX form. It's called XAU. So I had long XAU um, versus the Swiss franc, which was a negative yielding currency. So it actually made gold a positive carry position. Um, but then the Swiss francs uh, you know, the 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 central bank kind of messed that up. So fortunately it was just options. But you know, it's um it's definitely just been one of those very frustrating trades. And I actually did a lot of um academic research on what is gold, because some people say, oh, gold is an inflation hedge. And I think I really did believe that um mm. probably initially. And now I'm solidly in the camp of gold is you know, definitely a fiat currency trade. It's definitely FX. It's definitely psychology, but I don't think it is an inflation hedge. And I know we'll probably get lots of comments from all the gold bug and, you know, bring it on. I love all the hate that I get. But, uh, <laughs> I have done the work and uh, would be happy to send out our papers on gold being a lot of things, definitely a fiat currency, definitely psychology, but it's not an inflation hedge. That's in so interesting. Opinion. And you're absolutely right. We get questions about it constantly in the shows we do because of the situation we're in and because people are looking for that sort of safe haven harbor yeah. and they think that's the, the way to protect itself. I'm laughing when you're like, hey, bring it on. Um, you cut, you <laughs> well, clearly- I just know the comments. I know. People are crazy with gold. So it's- well, uh... you, could, you could maybe just stop with people are crazy because if, if it doesn't fit <laughs> into their, um, right now, people are very tribal about whatever it is they believe in. They're very, mm -hmm. they're very fixed on that. But it sounds like you're really comfortable being a contrarian. Like you're okay with that. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I guess I, I sort of, 
think doing what everybody else is doing is a little boring. So I, uh, you know, I guess I like naturally enjoy, you know, when everybody's worried about one thing, the other side is usually cheaply priced in terms of volatility and being kind of a, a long option, long ball person. I think it plays to my personality um, and something I enjoy doing. I think it also gives you a lot of staying power. You know, when you use a long option, I think of it as like a debit card. You know, the most that you can lose is the premium that you spend. Mm -hmm. And then you have time depending, you know, sometimes we use really long dated options and you can wait, you know, you can have a lot of, you know, like I remember with even like with Volkswagen, like the, the thing everybody was shorted, it ripped to the moon and then it fell. But it was all about staying power. So I think options give you, when you're long options, not short options, but when you're long options, you have that staying power because the most that you can lose is the premium that you've allocated to that trade. Yeah. We're going to have to get you to do an academy session for us, <laughs> Nancy, because, uh, yeah, this is something that I think a lot of people they want to use more, but, you know, it's intimidating if you haven't been sort of, you know, in that market. I'm curious, how do you tell the difference between being contrarian and just being wrong? <laughs> that's a good question, Mary. I mean, it's all timing, right? And I think that's one thing that, you know, taking a lot of, a lot of traders out there, whether they're systematic or CTAs or trend followers, a lot of people are doing similar things, you know, they buy, you know, to, to simplify things, they buy what's going up, they sell what's going down. But the big problem with those sorts of things is liquidity mm -hmm. and being able to execute in a linear derivatives market, like the futures market, you're kind of relying on liquidity. And so I think, you know, definitely with long options, you can be wrong for a lot longer. I think it's a lot more forgiving than something that's a linear derivative. Like if you think about using a future or forward or swap, it goes up a dollar, but it can also do, go down a dollar. And so you can have even like the UK, they had a margin call on linear derivatives. They were receiving rates, um, meaning basically being levered long bonds with swaps. And then they got a margin call where they had to turn around and sell their collateral. And mm -hmm. so I think you can be wrong for longer if you use um, long options. Um, there definitely is pain involved in the in the meantime, but I think it gives me a lot of comfort with the way that we're investing. And again, remember, I think most people are not using options as part of their portfolio. Options are the periphery of the portfolio. For us, the options are that core piece of the portfolio. And so I think it's just it's different. You know, it's a different way of thinking about investing. Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe one better luck to the professionals, but I like to understand what, you know, even if it, I'm leaving it to other people, I think it's, it's, it's fascinating to hear you talk about it because I think it's good for us to have an understanding of it. I'm curious, like when, when I hear you talk, it's almost like you see the world like this. Like you can see <laughs> when I, when I hear people talk about options in depth, it's, it looks like a, it seems to me to be a 3d map that you guys <laughs> see, but then the rest of us don't, cause we don't know how to read it. Does it feel like that to you? Like when you, were at that management consulting that first job when you were exposed to derivatives did you sort of immediately understand it like is it something that was a native understanding to you or did you have to sort of work to make sense of it yeah no I, I took five grad classes and 
those um, that was all transfer pricing with swaps. It was all linear derivatives. I just kind of, as I learned more about the derivative markets and just kind of got more in the weeds, I actually just fell in love with options. I know that's like a weird thing to say, but it really is a passion of mine. And I knew that, um, you know, sometimes when you when you go into a career, you kind of think like, oh, maybe it's luck or maybe I just, you know, ended up here. I actually was um, a full-time stay-at-home mom by choice when my kids were really little um, in that, that zero to three bucket. As an investor, I really wanted to be home with them. So I was a full-time stay-at-home mom for three and a half years. And strangely, it was actually in that period where I was like, I really love options. Like I used to go, my kids, I know it's like that time that you get to like really like pause and say, what do I do in my free time? Like, how do I spend my time? What like gets me fired up? And it was, look, it was not normal. Like, you know, most, most stay-at-home moms when their kids are in the twos program and they have, you know, you have two hours a day to yourself when they're in the little, like the two-year-old program. So this is just like a preschool thing. And um, I used to go to the Greenwich Library and use their Bloomberg terminals. And I would price up structured products on the secondary market, which was, you know, all convertible bonds with options. And I would trade in my like little two hour window a day, which was not normal. Like, you know, other my friends were going to Le Pan Quotien to have coffee together, or they were playing pickleball, or they were going grocery shopping, or they were going to Whole Foods. You know, I had no interest in shopping, no interest in socializing. You know, I like to trade my uh, my structured products, and that was weird. <laughs> I can't even imagine what the librarians must have been thinking. Like, they were like, who is this person that comes sliding in? I mean, I, I, I would have loved I to fly on the wall. Yeah, but I mean, I think it was a nice time in my life to be like, I actually love doing this because I do it in my in my very small amount of free time. Like when you have two toddlers and a baby, you know, I had a toddler and a baby. It was not, you know, I didn't have a lot of time to myself. And I, I was like, I really saw it as my job. Like I had no nannies, no babysitters. Like I was all in being, you know, I guess whatever I do, I like, I want to do it really well. Like if I'm, if I'm going to cook dinner, I want it to be like freaking awesome. Like I want everything to be perfect. I guess I'm like a pretty intense person. And I took the same approach to parenting. Like I was like, I'm not, I'm not hiring babysitters. I'm not hiring nannies. Like I'm all in. But uh, I think seeing myself, you know, doing option trading for fun in my free time was really a good reality check to be like, I did get lucky because I fell into something that I loved. But I also, before I got to Goldman, I was using options in my own portfolio. I was investing in them in college. You know, that's kind of weird. But, <laughs> you know, I think whatever whatever floats your boat, I think in life, if you can find something that you love to do and try to build a career around something that you enjoy doing personally, that's hmm. that whatever it is, I think that's kind of the the way to be successful because it doesn't it doesn't feel like work, right? It's something yeah. you actually like doing. Yeah. And you have you you really have to have that attitude if you can have any sanity. <laughs> you must have been the only in the room a lot though. I mean, you know, we 
especially for something like derivatives. I mean, there are more and more women in investment banking, but I cannot fathom back at that time that there were a lot of women doing derivatives. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely at the um, the ball conferences. Um, so the volatility conferences, uh, you know, I definitely, I feel like a rock star, you know, everybody knows who I am and <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's weird. Like you can, I think it's all your perception on how you look at things. Like some people could be like, oh, I feel really awkward because I'm the only, you know, blonde wearing pink ruffles and flower earrings in a room. But for me, I was like, yeah, I just, you know, I always kind of was like, I deserve to be here and everybody knows who I am. And to me, that was, it was kind of cool. Like, um, but I also hired, you know, a lot of women and a lot of other people over the course of my career as I got more senior to build more diversity, but definitely the the derivatives in vol world is pretty pretty small. Um, but I always felt like a really big fish. So yeah. it was good. <laughs> you used it to your advantage. You used it yeah. to your, yeah. Yeah. I think it, it's all your mindset too. It's like whether you look around and you see nobody else that is necessarily like you. And whether you think, you know, hey, I'm lucky to be here or whether you're like, I don't belong. For me, I was always like in the uh, I'm I'm happy to be here camp. Yeah. And you, and in, in all your travels, you never felt that that it was that you were underestimated or that it was somehow held against you or people doubted you your credentials more. No, I was very fortunate to have, you know, to be on Goldman's prop desk in the 2000s when we were probably the largest uh, prop desk in the world. And I ran the largest options book in the world. So like, I don't want to sound arrogant, but everybody you were badass knew, who, people treated they you. knew who I was. <laughs> they better I was know like who Madonna are. in the ball world. They're like, oh, that's Nancy. <laughs> so, I never felt that way. <laughs> I love it. I love yeah. it. Um, so your fourth trade, your fourth and final trade is one of your best. And that's in 2019, the day you listed Quadratics ETF IVOL. So this is amazing. Give us a little background on this. What At some point you made the decision, you had been working for sort of larger firms, some of the largest, obviously, as we just discussed, but large firms and investment banking. Why did you decide to make this move? Well, I think it really goes back to when I started my career in the late 90s at Goldman. It was right when the U.S. Treasury Department issued TIPS. So these are Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. And I remember being a young trader and being like, that is so not going to work. You know, they're bonds. So all TIPS are long duration. So they all lose money. Um, even a short duration bond is still long. It's just, it really should be called less long. So it's like tips are all long duration. And then the only index, which I think is really important to think about, is CPI. And the consumer price index is not even an index that the Fed uses. So why would you only measure inflation with CPI? And so for me, it was always sort of a lifelong career passion of mine to fix the tips market. And so what eyeball is, it takes a portfolio which is about you know 80% typically sometimes 85% in that type of treasury bonds so we take tips and then we fix the problems with long options and so for me it was just one of those like innovations i think there's not a lot of there's not a lot of in asset management a lot of the strategies are the same old thing 
you know, plus or minus 25 basis points, the same indices, the same kind of group think. And so for me, it was really a solution. And I think that that was exciting to be able to have my own firm and to say, look, this is a problem. People don't realize that the ag index is got no inflation protection in it. They don't realize that the ag index, a third of it is mortgages and mortgages are short volatility because homeowners are on the option to prepay. We saw that recently when Silicon Valley Bank had those issues. It was because mortgages, homeowners are rational. And when interest rates go higher, they don't prepay as quickly. And then the mortgage extends their duration right when the bond investor is losing more and more money as interest rates move higher. So it's always the same story, but I think it was it was super exciting for me to be able to see a problem in the market, create a financial innovative way of fixing it and putting it into a single QSIP product. I mean, I think I look at the mortgage market and I'm like someone, you know, that had to be QSIP, it had to be investable. And I feel like I've done that with Ival um, and Quadratic has and Crane, my ETF partner, we've innovated in the space by making a single QSIP product in a market that was previously really not accessible for people because it is an OTC market. Yeah, that's amazing. By the way, um, Nancy and I did a whole kind of deep dive on, on this issue, kind of anchored in current conditions. Um, which I highly recommend you go back and look at because right after we talked, it was so prescient because so much happened in the wake of that that really, I think, brought to life a lot of what Nancy's talking about more broadly here. And I'm sure we'll sit down for an update on it again because um, what I always like is that you're identifying sort of the risks that you saw out there that were underappreciated. And this is the thing that that sort of blows everything up, you know, again and again. What what was the hard what's been the hardest part of of having your own firm and sort of giving birth to this ETF? What, what was something that was hard that you didn't anticipate? Um, you know, the the ETF world is an oligopoly. It's really controlled by three large firms. And I think one thing I I did not appreciate, or maybe I was a little naive, or you know, sometimes you need a little bit of rose-colored glasses and as an entrepreneur, is I didn't realize how competitive it was and how hard it is to get approved at these wealth management platforms. Like you actually have to go and they have to like do due diligence on you and approve you to allow people to buy an ETF, like which which seems bizarre to me. Like, I mean, if it's a listed security, it's listed on the stock exchange, why do you need all these approvals? But a lot of the firms, you know, are pretty um, like in your face about like, we only look at the largest ETF issuers. We do not look at smaller firms. We, you know, mm. just don't bother. And I think that's been, I, I want to shake them and be like, well, why the hell not? You know, like, yeah. what's wrong with you? Like, why wouldn't you want something that's different, that's innovative? But I think that's been the biggest frustration is kind of fighting, fighting, you know, we are, Ival is not approved at large, you know, certain large wealth management firms. We're still, you know, fingers crossed. I'm hoping that, you know, the fund just turned four years old. We paid out 30 basis points every single month since the fund started paying distributions in July, 2019. And I'm hoping that, you know, this will be kind of the, 
the next wave to kind of get it more, you know, to compete with the the bigger oligopoly firms. But the ETF industry is definitely the most competitive, the hardest to break into. And um, it's really an access problem where you need to get the wealth management firms to allow you on the platform. And that has been something that's pretty, pretty challenging and frustrating and something I'm still I'm still working on, but I'm but I'm optimistic, Maggie. I think we'll get there. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because it, it is the 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 way that sort of individuals can access things. So it's sort of strange that what should be you know open to all, and that was the whole idea of it, has this has this sort of um, traffic jam, if you will, in yeah. the middle. Um, how have you found being an entrepreneur? Do you like oh, that? Is that it. is that a muscle you knew you had? Um, you know, I love being an entrepreneur and I definitely have, you know, you know who you are. I have a whole, I'd say like my peeps out there that I have convinced to leave their day job, start their own business. And it, it's across industries. Like I have friends that are, no matter what industry that you're in, if you love what you do, you do things differently and you're creating a solution for people. I think it all comes back to like, if you're a solution, you should do it. And so I really, you know, had so much fun being an entrepreneur and also bringing other people onto the entrepreneurial side. And I, I just get a lot of, um, a lot of love in my life from doing that and helping others and motivating people, um, whether it's in finance or outside of finance in different, different, venues, different types of businesses. But I I have absolutely loved being an entrepreneur. I've actually been working for myself um, since 2013. So I've actually been working for my own firm as an entrepreneur, self-employed longer now than I was at Goldman Sachs. So I'm very That's wild. Yeah, I'm a fingers crossed for the next decade, but I'm a, I'm super excited about it. I love building a business. I love creating a firm and I'm just, I'm looking forward to the, what the future holds. That's amazing. So we started off talking about you sort of hanging out of trees and covered in dirt all the time, but are there, are there people, you know, family, friends early in your life who look at you now and say like, this is, are they surprised at what you ended up doing? Is it, is it sort of, you know, hilarious to them that you end up this, you know, Wall Street sort of titan and, and owner of your own business? You know, it's so funny, but I honestly don't think anyone in my family is impressed with me. I think they're all, you know, like, whatever. <laughs> You're the boring person at the dinner table talking about options. I, I know. No, I, I, a lot of people in my family are, um, are physicians or they're, they're doctors. And I think I've always been a little bit of a disappointment to some of my family members because I'm not, I'm not curing cancer. I'm not helping people. I'm involved in dirty things like money, you know, <laughs> but I have to say like, when I'm on, uh, you know, if I do like the real vision with you yeah. or television or any kind of Thing, like nobody watches it. Um, like nobody cares in my family. Like I get no props from anybody. But in a weird way, I kind of wonder whether that's been what's driven me because I've definitely been a self-starter. Like I'm not doing this to impress my parents. I remember, you know, I I probably will not name which person this is in my family, but basically, I don't know, it was around probably 2019 when we we had listed Eyeball. It was the first of its kind ETF. It's the first long 
interest rate vol product, you know, in the US ETF market, I was, you know, feeling like super pat on my back. And one of my, you know, parents told me, maybe I should go back to Goldman Sachs and get a real job. You know, like, I kid you not. I was it's it's so com- it's so funny though that's it's it's common um yeah. it, it's more common than you think because um it's come up m- multiple times especially the physician physician a lawyer makes the family happy and then otherwise they're like i don't really get what you do but okay yeah. but i don't really get it um but that's it's just okay. probably I'm generational not... <laughs> yeah no it's uh it's definitely um you know people are like oh your parents must be so proud of you it's like no, I don't think so. Well, <laughs> but thank it's goodness. Okay. If they knew that you were one name, Nancy, the Madonna of finance, um, <laughs> we, you may not be bearable to be in a room with. So it's maybe it's good you have people keeping you down to earth. I know, right? They keep me humble. <laughs> Same so with my, your... my children are so good at keeping me humble. You know, I, I'm sure you'll appreciate this, Maggie. I was on um I was on Bloomberg TV recently, and I am not a uh a good dresser, I guess you could say, like, I'm just not, like, I don't have that fashionista about, you know, I'm wearing no shoes right now. Like, I'm like, no (laughs) shoes are the best shoes. You know, I just don't have that. And so I sent the video after it was on to, to my son and he wrote me back. He's like, mom, you look like an airline stewardess. Like I had this scarf on and I was like, thank you. (laughs) You know, keep me, (laughs) keep me humble. (laughs) I love it. They're the harshest critics. Oh, I know. And he's, he was totally right. Like I absolutely did look like, you know, I was a flight attendant. <laughs> well, well, dressing may not be your superpower, Nancy, but certainly um, everything else is in the investing world. And we're super Aww. grateful for that and that you come on and share it with us. Thank you so much for being on My Life in Four Trades. Thank you, Maggie. It's great to see you. I really appreciate you having me on. It's it's a fantastic journey and should be inspirational to everyone. And thanks to all of you for joining. As usual, take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. 